0: It's Wednesday, June the 24th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. As we hurtle towards November and what promises to be one of the most divisive, ugly, and consequential presidential elections in American history, the flow of books about what is happening politically in America right now is also ratcheting up. Masha Gessen has a particular and very useful set of skills and experiences that make them especially suited for this task. The editor, activist and New Yorker magazine journalist first came to the US as a teenager in the 1980s from what was then the USSR before returning to Russia a decade later in the 90s as an investigative reporter, getting a ringside view along the way of the country's transition from post-Soviet chaos to a new model of undemocratic, autocratic government under Vladimir Putin. It was the Putin's regime's relentless assault on LGBT rights that finally forced Gessen, who identifies as non-binary, to leave with their family for the US seven years ago. Gessen was one of the foremost chroniclers of Russia's descent under Putin into a kleptocratic mafia state, and that perspective informs their new book, Surviving Autocracy. I talked to them earlier. Masha Gessen, you're very welcome to the podcast. Um, Can I ask you, first of all, you are one of a number of writers who comes to the fraught experience of talking about this present political moment in the United States from a background of either direct life experience or writing historically about Russia, the old Soviet Union, and the Warsaw Pact countries. We had Timothy Snyder on this podcast a while ago, and Applebaum as well um, has has done some of that. And it seems to me to be both a productive and uh, and a fraught exercise because it can lead to a gross oversimplification because Trump and Putin, uh, the United States right now, and Russia, the history of the two countries are in so many ways so different.
1: Well, you know, to be fair to uh, Anne Applebaum and, and, and Tim Snyder, they actually have written a lot about Central Europe. And I think that a lot of what Anne certainly has used is, is her experience observing Poland and Hungary. And so, and so has Tim. And in fact, so have I. Um, but I think I'm going to paraphrase something that I think Tim said early on in all this which is that Americans are not better people or more educated people, or in any way, really different people than Germans in the 1930s. The one advantage that we do have, and whatever I get wrong about this quote, that's on me, but I think the idea basically belongs to Tim. But the only advantage we have is that that already happened. I mean, learning from history is exactly this. There's never going to be an exact parallel, but there are there are understandings that we can have about what we're capable of as humans and, and how, um, you know, how the worst moments in the history of humanity have come about. And so I think that people who have studied those times are not coincidentally people who are sounding the alarm the loudest about what's happening in the world now.
0: The book seems to have its roots in an article which you wrote immediately after the 2016 presidential election, which was called Autocracy Rules for Survival. So obviously there's a there's a parallel between the two titles. One of the things I wonder about in that is survival for whom? Is it the survival of the society which is threatened by these forces or is it the survival of the individual who finds themselves in that society?
1: That's a great question. And the answer is both, but uh, but let me explain. You know, when um, that original piece was written, I actually wrote it the night of the 2016 election. And the way it came about was that I was riding my bike back from a disastrous election party, which almost I think every American has a story about an election party, the election watching party that they went to on November 8th, 2016, and tried to slink away from it without saying goodbye to the host. And um, and so I was riding my bike. It was, far, uh, it was fairly far away from my house. And people started calling me and texting me and asking me, what do we do now? And I thought, well, this is a very funny question to, to ask me because obviously I'm living in exile. I would be the last person I would ask about what we do now. Whatever I did didn't work, right? uh, living under Putin. But, but then, you know, as I kept writing... I thought, is there something that I have actually learned that I can pass on to people who have never lived with um, an autocrat? And you know, the problem with living with an autocrat on a daily basis is not that your individual freedoms are constrained. The problem is that you live in a different political reality. Sort of reality gets mushy. Things become unknowable. You know, it's like living in a submarine. Everything you see becomes incredibly large, but most things are obscured and you feel very besieged. And so I ventured to guess that this, from what we had seen of Trump, was going to be similar to our predicament. And, you know, I turned out to be right. So so the original essay, Autocracy Rules for Survival, was really about sanity. It wasn't about, uh, you know, physical survival or even political survival. It was about a sort of psychic survival um, under conditions of autocracy. And I think the book is also largely about that. But I am looking more at the psychic survival of society, so political survival, and less of the psychic survival of of us as individuals. But the goal is still very much to facilitate that survival, right? Right. because, you know, as I write in the book, I think that that sense that everything is just hazy and, and constantly out of focus is one of the most debilitating effects of Trumpism. And the writers and thinkers that I most admire, in particular, Mbalad Magyar, whose work I use in the book, you know, he has this effect that, like, you start reading something the way that he describes, you know, contemporary Hungary, for example. And suddenly you find yourself thinking, but of course, of course, that's exactly it. That's obvious. Which it wasn't to you before he started writing. But there's a kind of clarity that he brings to the subject that suddenly makes it possible to think about. So that's, that's, that's my ultimate aspiration, is to bring that kind of clarity, which I think facilitates psychic survival.
0: Because survival can mean a number of things, can't it? I mean, even in your own family experience, it meant the survival of a certain type of intelligentsia and intellectual life, despite the best efforts to destroy that in the years or decades of the, the Soviet Union. But survival can also, particularly in the modern sense, can mean somebody or something that's deeply traumatized and unable to recover from that. I, I think you wrote about Homo Sovieticus in one of your books, which was a sort of a description of that kind of trauma which lasts well beyond, well after the, the regime itself is gone.
1: That's, that's exactly right. You know, and a lot of the research that I did for that book, The Future's History, indirectly informs this new, much shorter book, uh, Surviving Autocracy, because a lot of the, what I thought about was, what is it that makes people ch- choose autocracy? What is it that makes people feel so overwhelmed that they would rather not think and also what is our relationship to to the present the past and the future in in a sort of psychopolitical sense when does the present become so anxious so overwhelming that that we want to take the, the, the to accept the invitation to return to an imaginary past which is very much the autocrats offer and when does the promise of a glorious future override that, is that, is that or is that a possibility? I mean, that's, that's sort of um, the most conjectural part of the book, because we're not quite seeing that yet. But I think that's, that's the ultimate ticket to survival.
0: Why the word autocracy rather than the word authoritarianism or you know, illiberalism? I know totalitarianism is a somewhat different thing. Some people say fascism. You don't. So why autocracy?
1: Um, that's a great question, and, and the answer is actually more complicated than you might think. Part of the reason I don't like the word authoritarianism, in part because so much of my research has been on totalitarianism, and authoritarianism and totalitarianism are actually a meaningful pair, right? Authoritarianism, in some ways, is the opposite of totalitarianism. It's not just the way that we, always, we often use the word authoritarian in the Anglo-Saxon world is just to mean anything that's not democratic. But in fact, authoritarianism as, as, as a model is a, a, a society in which one person or a group of people are running things while everyone else tends to their private lives. The authoritarian leader wants people to stay home and think about their, their private lives. And so nothing is political. Right? Authoritarianism aims to destroy all politics totalitarianism is the opposite in the sense that everything is political. The private sphere disappears entirely. I mean, in the model, not in the, in the actual life. Um, but in the model, there's no privacy. Everyone is out in the public square shouting their support for the leader at all times. So I prefer to use the word authoritarianism in that context. And, and I actually don't think that Donald Trump is an authoritarian leader. Donald Trump would like to be a totalitarian leader if he could. He really wants his, you know, he wants the, the whole country to be one giant Trump rally. So using the word authoritarian to, to refer to him would actually not be accurate. Now, I hate the word liberal because a liberal is something that is not. Right? Okay, so that doesn't actually tell us anything about the thing itself. It just tells us something about what, what it isn't. So it's really not informative. I think that the word fascist is perfectly accurate when applied to Donald Trump. I also think it's incendiary and and pulls you down into an argument that I'm not always up for having. I have used the word fascist to describe Donald Trump, both during his campaign and much more recently uh, when he used helicopters and tear gas to create a photo op holding the Bible. You know. That was a performance of fascism, and that was like that was a hill I was willing to die on because it was such a specific such a specific performance. But autocrat, I think, is like fascist, accurate, and also somewhat unusual, right? And as a writer, I want to use words that will make people think. Authoritarian is used so often, so casually, and so inaccurately that it doesn't make people think fascist is used accurately but so often in such an incendiary way that it doesn't it make it gives people to argue it doesn't get people to think so basically i use the word autocrat in part so that you would ask me the question why are you using the word autocrat
0: <laughs> well well done uh, just to come back to the fascism because i'm interested that, that that you know you think it might be useful but but for the reasons you say it isn't useful in this instance i was looking at I was trying to think about that. I was actually listening to a, a, another podcast the other day and there was a debate going on about the relationship between European fascism in the first part of the 20th century and what was described as a particular American form of fascism, the rebirth, I suppose, of the Ku Klux Klan in the, in the 1920s and very, various other things, including the massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which has been in the news a lot last week because of the, the Trump rally in that city. And I came across uh, a quote by Umberto Eco, uh, about fascism, where he talked, and it's a little bit about, about, like something you've said already, that fascism is very protean-fuzzy, I think is actually the word he, he used, although that may not be the same in Italian. He said of fascism as a form of extreme nationalism, it ultimately takes on the contours of whatever national culture produces it. And that seems to me to be very true. That is very true. It is also, um,
1: it, it is also an illustration of why it's difficult to use the word fascism to describe uh, Donald Trump, because I mean, part of Trump's project, and and, I, and you know, I write about that in the book, is to redefine Americanness in really fundamental ways. I think this is something that has been underappreciated, just how radical a redefinition he has brought to Americanness. But part of the reason that he is compelled to bring a radical redefinition is there that there hasn't been nationalism in the United States. We haven't had a self-concept as a nation-state. This self-concept has been as a nation of immigrants, as a republic, um, but as, as an ethnically diverse society, we have, we have failed at it, we have strived for it, but, um, but there hasn't been this nativist, racist kind of politics before. There has been racist politics for sure, but this very strong idea that is usually you know, so fundamental to nationalism that we don't think about it—that you were born here in this place as part of a particular ethnic group, particular creed, um, certainly a particular color—and only you belong here and others don't—that hasn't been part of the American idea. And Trump has, has has managed in three and a half years to make it very clearly a part of the American idea and part of the American self-concept.
0: Although I suppose there was always American nativism, what it didn't come with was the sort of the the revanchism or the desire for an empire. But I suppose that, that perhaps the reason for that was, and you see that in the way that Hitler, for example, looked towards uh, American history as a model for some of the, of the Nazi project, was that the opportunities for expansion lay within its own continental landmass.
1: Right, so... Um... I mean, this goes a little bit beyond the scope of the book, and I'm, I'm, I'm worried about get, ending up on a kind of slippery, um, just because I haven't thought that much about uh, about that. But, you know, I do, I do write a little bit about a kind of inward turning under Trump. And I'm using ideas of this wonderful historian, Greg Grandin, um, who has written about sort of the end of, of, of American expansionism and this kind of turning... Uh, inward and in the loss of moral aspiration along the way like somehow as long as the american project was geographically expansionist it was also and i'm not you know i'm not in any way justifying or or trying to put a good spin on american expansionism but but there was a moral expansionism that went along with it that justified that was used to justify it all of it, that also sort of on an ongoing basis reaffirmed this idea that we were becoming a better country, a country of more people, a country of more of its people, a society that was becoming more complex and enfranchised more and more people with every sort of passing period. And under Donald Trump, there's been this contraction where, and it's, and it's a geographic contraction, like the United States has suddenly... Stop having an interest in the rest of the world period and you know and it has pulled out of international organizations and uh, in eventual in ways but also in a kind of in i think almost sincere ways like we really isn't interested in the rest of the world the world the rest of the world doesn't exist um it's looking inward but uh, there's also a kind of moral simplification and this complete rejection of that moral expansionist aspiration.
0: So I'll try to get back to the book with apologies. But one quote you have, which I which I wondered about, was, was I suppose it's about this whole clown car element of this Trump administration. There's a quote, Trump's incompetence is militant. It is not a factor that might mitigate the threat he poses. It is the threat itself. And I wonder, I'm just looking right now in this moment at the, the conduct of the White House over the last two months and the political consequences of that, at least in the short term in terms of uh, Trump standing in the polls, um, kind of um, kind of an avalanche of bad news stories, his seeming inability to get a grip of, uh, of the news agenda, certainly for the moment anyway. Yeah. Um, but the incompetence doesn't always work,
1: does it? Well, it depends on what uh, how we measure work, right? How we measure success. I think that if you view his project, as I do, as a project of destruction, that the incompetence really works. Right? He has, um, by not knowing and by refusing to know, and by demonstrating this constant disdain for for excellence and for competence, and and contempt for government, especially government as a complicated entity, right? uh, he has managed to destroy probably more government than than somebody who is more explicitly an opponent of of big government, like Ronald Reagan because Trump's project is explicitly destructive and explicitly anti-expertise. And I think that that's, you know, what we have seen over the last few months with the White House's handling of the pandemic is an example of just how profound that destruction is. This is what militant incompetence looks like. It looks like, a president who is in flagrant denial of facts in sort of real time on, on TV, you know, a president who refuses to wear a mask at a factory that makes n- nasal swabs to test for coronavirus and then a day's worth of nasal swabs have to be destroyed because, because he refused to wear a mask. Right? A president who suggests injecting disinfectant into your body and then says he didn't mean it. Which is another aspect of this kind of militant incompetence, because it rejects even the idea that the president's words should mean something. Right. It's, it's it's that profound. So, so in that sense, I think that you know his project is very successful. If you're asking more traditionally, is his incompetence going to trip him up and in his bid for reelection? And in that sense, you know, is it also not successful? Well. We don't know. I really, really hope so. But I have a lot of concerns about, uh, about November, um, not least of which is that I'm not 100% certain that the election is going to happen on time. But, um, uh, and, and certainly, you know, the, out in the open, Trump has laid the groundwork for refusing to recognize the results of the election. But I also fear that, that we might become overconfident in this moment. I mean, the moment right now in the United States feels amazing. There's a kind of hope in the air that I haven't felt, I think, since 2008. And there's um, going along with that is uh, the idea that Joe Biden is leading by the double digits in the polls, so so the results of the election are preordained and we're going to be fine. And he's shot himself in the foot too many times. And first of all, American politics are incredibly volatile and we're so far out from November that it's way too early to get so overconfident. But more sort of basically, I just worry that we're using the matrix of this reality, of this political reality, um, but Trump voters are voting in this other political reality. And and we're going to have to to... To, to to see how they square off. And I'm, not, uh, you know, in that sense, like, I think even the polling is happening in this reality where the laws of physics still obtain.
0: One of the things you note um, as a member of the LGBTQ community yourself is the way in which regimes such as Putin's and also Trump's, although there was a very significant Supreme Court decision this week, other LGBT people um, in the way that I suppose authoritarian groups have always othered. Smaller groups or out groups. But why specifically LGBT people?
1: No, actually, for fairly similar reasons in both cases, uh, both but, Putin and Trump. I mean, for Putin, it's uh, it's a little bit more obvious. So I'll start with him. He has really used LGBT people as a stand in for everything that has changed since 1991. And, you know, there were no gay people in, in the Soviet Union. And there really weren't. There were, there were people who had sex with people of the same sex and had relationships with people of the same sex, but there weren't people who said we belong to a group and their rights that accrue to this group and to us as members of this group. And there there's a community, a culture, whatever defines an identity, right? Nobody claimed an identity in the Soviet Union. And so in a way, he is accurate when he says that everything that happened since 1991 uh, or, or that the appearance of LGBT people uh, is something that happened after the Soviet Union collapsed. It is the Western import. And so it can stand in for everything that has changed, that, has made you, that is making you uncomfortable. Everything that came in from the outside. And if we just got rid of queer people, then we could go back to living in a state in which we were comfortable and nothing, uh, and nothing made us anxious. In Trump's case, it's a little bit fancier footwork, but it's basically the same thing. The most rapid social change in the united states has occurred in the area of lgbt rights this is something that a lot of people have a living memory of thinking that they had never met an lgbtq person that they would never meet one that it was something uh, of of sickness of other um unimaginable and going to certainly knowing LGBT people uh having same-sex marriage and and living in Society that takes these things absolutely for granted, and so it is also a very intuitive thing to point to and say, "Okay, you want to go back to an imaginary past that didn't make you make you anxious? We can reverse all of this stuff."
0: A whole other part of this is the idea of the mafia state. Uh, I read the New York Times review of John Bolton's book today, which sounds like a an a strange artifact in the in the history of this of this time. There's sounds like there's quite a lot in it. I haven't
1: read the book or the the review, but yes.
0: But it does sound like there's quite a lot in it about the mafia state. In other words, Hmm. Trump directly trying to use his position to uh, either um, enable his his political survival or possibly as well to uh, feather his nest financially. Putin is probably the most successful uh, head of a mafia state in the history of the world, isn't he? So is, is he a... Is he a model and exemplar for the other ones around the country? There seem to be more and more of them popping up around the place.
1: Well, you know, the, the, the idea of the mafia state, the model of the mafia state is actually developed by the same thinker who, whose work on uh, autocracy I use, right? Autocratic attempt, autocratic, right? Um, but it's Balad Major and, um, and I think he's, he's absolutely brilliant, but he, he used Hungary as, as an example. And it's a very... In a way, it's beneficial for him because it's such a small country and it's such a small model to to be able to really dissect. But I think that the model that he developed in Hungary applies to Russia, just about one hundred percent. And um, it's it's a system that's run as a clan. It's centered around one person who distributes money and power. And in Putin's case, yeah, he's he has been completely successful by stripping everyone around him or everyone else in the country of both political and financial power and then redistributing it one of the effects of that of creating that system is that every single person in the russian elites is in a relationship with putin but probably not in a relationship with anyone else in the elites right it's not it's not a web it's not a relationship of a group, an elite, the elite as a group, to the leader, which is the way that traditional political science always analyzes elites. Right? It's actually the relationship of one man to all these other men, and Trump is certainly trying to do something like that. And um, you know, going back to Russia for a second, I think that's part of the uh, part of the reason that a lot of the analysis of Russia uh, based on these traditional. Uh, Models of elites is wrong is because it assumes that there can be some kind of solidarity within the elites Right. So so people for years kept projecting that, you know Oh now that the economy is getting worse There's going to be palace coup because the elites are going to get resentful and they're going to to overthrow him But there's no such thing as the elites who can form solidarity within themselves They're all in a relationship with him and they're all Jockeying for position Closer to him, so that if the pie is getting smaller, they just want to get closer to the center of the pie. And I think Trump has been incredibly effective in creating some of that dynamic in in the White House now. And one of the pieces of evidence that we've actually seen of that is how long it took for somebody to go through the regular channels to file a whistleblower report. And of course, you know, we usually think of whistleblowers as a sort of individual action it is actually an action of kind of elite solidarity because uh, It's very clear from the whistleblower report that this one person was sitting in or near the white house for months collecting Testimony from from other people. That's what's in the whistleblower report. So it was a collective effort But it took three years for that to happen because as soon as trump stepped into that office the dynamic changed to the you know the kind of relationship where everyone is in a relationship with him and not with others. And I think the Bolton book again, which I haven't read, um, but even the fact that he chose to to be one of a gazillion people who monetized their involvement in the administration by writing a tell-all book instead of going through institutional channels and testifying. Uh, in, in the impeachment hearings, which he was subpoenaed to do, is another example of that, that sort of dynamic.
0: Is a system like that potentially unstable, or am I being too optimistic, in that it, if, it, if it's a reliance so much on this all-powerful central figure, what happens when the central figure goes or is deposed?
1: Yeah, it is extremely personalized. So in that sense, um, you know, the Putinism is not going to persist beyond Putin it is conceivable that they will try to maintain a kind of Putinism without Putin it's not going to be successful it is it is very much centered on that personality and on those personal relationships the question to me and and this is really what motivated me to write the book is what happens to us in the meantime like Trumpism will end it's if we're lucky uh, and and, and we work hard, we'll end on November 3rd of this year. And if we're not lucky, it will end later. But it will end, obviously. He is an old man uh, and everything ends. But what happens to us? In the meantime, what happens to our language? What happens to our media? What happens to our ability to trust one another and create politics together? What happens to our institutions? What do we do? And this is something I don't actually write about in the book, but I have written about before. Um, You know, what mechanisms do we put in place in response to what we perceive rightly as an emergency that will be harmful in the future? Like, for example, repeated calls or invoking the 25th amendment and removing Trump from office because of his mental health, I think are extremely dangerous. Not because I don't want him removed from office, but because creating precedent for judging a president's mental health, not on the basis of information that is somehow privileged and not accessible to voters, right? But on the basis of things that are in plain view that voters have observed and yet voted for him, that is extremely dangerous precedent because that is something that that can be used again to override the will of the voters because some group of people decides that a visionary president in the future is
0: mentally ill. I mean, we've seen some evidence of that already, haven't right. we? With some of the pushback from uh, military leaders, for example, against some some policies of the White House, which, in different circumstances, you, one might be extremely worried that the military were pushing back. And I've also seen commentary saying that were it to come to some form of disputed or rejected uh, election results in November, that you know the military and other forces might be might be the ones that make the final call on it, and it will depend which way they go.
1: Um, Yes, well, I mean, it feels completely crazy-making to be analyzing the United States in those terms. Ah. Uh, But if we look at the available facts, we know that Donald Trump has made it clear that he's likely to, to refuse to recognize the results of the election. He has made it clear by making repeated claims in 2016 that Millions of immigrants voted illegally, and he has also made it clear, more recently, by you know creating this specter of voter fraud. That was the thing that finally got Twitter to, to fact check one of his tweets. You know, years into this fraud relationship, so he's he's laid that groundwork, and if we, if we then say okay, so we're looking at a country where the president may refuse to recognize the results of the election and may refuse to leave office. What happens in a country like that? In a country like that, what happens is what the uniformed services decide. And that in turn depends on perceived legitimacy. Again, that's something that we know from looking at other countries. If the uniformed services uh, or the ununiformed services like the FBI believe that the president doesn't have legitimacy, then they will remove him from office. If they believe that he has legitimacy, that his claims to vote or fraud or whatever have legitimacy, that they will not intervene and he will be allowed to stay on in spite of the will of the voters. The only way I think that we can measure legitimacy in this country is by the number of votes cast. So if Donald Trump loses by the same kind of margin that he, lost by, uh, that he won by in 2016, we're going to be in deep, deep trouble. It, if he loses by millions of votes, he will be removed from office by the Uniform Services or the Secret Service, um, which which is also a very scary prospect, but not as scary as some others.
0: Finally, Joe Biden is campaigning essentially on a platform of a return to normalcy. I think is the is the phrase, but isn't the normalcy that existed up to twenty sixteen what ended up giving us Trump, and not just Trump, but uh, various manifestations of Trump-like figures and movements uh, around the world, some of them in countries that had little or no tradition of democracy, some of them in countries that had centuries-long traditions of democracy. There's something deep, deep underlying all of this that will need to be addressed, won't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's what worries me most about the Biden candidacy aside from his age um, but it, He very much comes from this and I, and I think this idea is still dominant in the Democratic Party This idea that we just need to go back to an imaginary pre-Trump normalcy and that idea rejects the, the Groundwork that had been laid for Trump most significantly to my mind post 9-11 by creating this siege mentality in this country, the sense that it's us against the world, and we're constantly under attack, by um, concentrating power in the executive branch, and by perpetuating the marriage of money and politics to to an extent that you know that is beyond I mean that is that is measures of magnitude beyond. What we would had, have had before I mean, it was hugely flawed before but um, you know, It was actually the obama administration that ended public financing For, for, for political campaigns So i'm extremely worried about that uh, As an understanding also, I would say that that's part of what led to the democratic party's utter obsession with russian interference Which which is this denial that conditions were rife For somebody like Trump, and so this idea that oh he must have come from from outer space, he was just brought here from by Russia. Uh, It's not that Americans elected him, so that worries me. You know, as as a political, uh, just bad you know bad politics, but it's also bad electoral politics because that's not how you respond to the appeal of the imaginary past, which is what Trump offers. You don't say, oh things were fine. When we're running the country, obviously they weren't. If they had been fine, Trump wouldn't have been elected. And so you, I think you need to respond to the appeal of the imaginary past with a vision of a glorious future, with a politics that takes people along and says, you know, let's let's imagine waking up in this country in five, ten, fifteen years, and knowing that you, we don't have to worry about our Find material security, knowing that we have free, guaranteed access to the best health, healthcare in the world. Knowing that we're not living, or you know, not having to think about living on a planet that's that's about to to burst into flames and kill us all. Um, that would be a beautiful vision, right? And that's that's Biden has made some small overtures in that direction as he. as as sort of part of his response to the protests, but not nearly enough.
0: So then finally, finally, I'm not sure how optimistic or how pessimistic you are about the ability of the United States to get itself out of this mess.
1: Well, this is where lessons of history, including very recent history, fall short. This has never happened in the United States before. We know the dangers by looking at other countries and looking at the 20th century. We know that humanity, including this humanity is capable of really, really awful things and of sort of stumbling into them casually. How it will play out in this country, we still don't know. I have, so I have great fear and and I have some hope, especially based on the last three weeks where we have seen not only protests all over the country, in small cities large uh, small towns, large cities, um, you know sustained protests, massive protests, but we've also seen this incredible shift in in public opinion and the sort of the, the assimilation of ideas that were marginal just a few weeks ago that's clearly a revolutionary moment that 's a kind of political opportunity that happens very very rarely the opportunity to really to undergo kind of a paradigm shift as a society, but is it going to happen? I, I don't know. It's too it's early to 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 say, and and it depends on whether this momentum can be
0: sustained through November. Masha Kassen, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you for having me and Masha Gesson's book, Surviving Autocracy, is published by Granta. That is it for today's podcast. Thanks to our engineer, JJ Vernon, and to our producer, Suzanne Brennan. If you would like to support this podcast and the journalism of the Irish Times, all you have to do is go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe, where you can sign up for the introductory price of one euro for the first month. And if you do want to get in touch with us, we are always really pleased to hear from you. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.